Open God's holy word to Peter's second letter, chapter 3. Focus this morning will be on verses 1 through 10. 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will be the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would stir up your people with their regenerate, new, true mind to remember Christ is Lord. He will return. And thus may we bow, obey, and worship Him knowing that the fullness of our salvation is certain. In His name I pray. Amen. As Peter approaches the end of this letter, he neatly folds the piece of paper in half so that the beginning matches the end. The edges are perfectly aligned. Let me explain. In 3, 1 through 15, people Peter opened with uh, this ethical exhortation that was rooted in the gospel, the evangel. So we could call this evangel energized ethics. Because of who Christ is and what he's done, because of his person and his work, because of these promises, because of his power, we should make every effort at godliness. And 
In that section, he tells us why he's writing these things. 1, 12 through 13. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. So we have this section that concerns evangel-energized ethics. And then in 1, 16 through 21, he tells us that the coming of Christ is not some apostolic hoax. It isn't some cleverly devised myth. He demonstrates this by both his personal apostolic witness of the glory of Christ as a preview of His return in glory. And he speaks of the more fully confirmed word of the prophets, the Old Testament Scriptures, that because of Christ, we now have more full confirmation of them as the very word of God. And then we come to the prominent place that you look at when you see, that you see when you fold this piece of paper in half. The crease that's down the middle that's so emphatic and dramatic. That section in chapter 2 concerning the false teachers. And now, in chapter 3, we see more clearly how all these things fit together. The exical exhortations that are rooted in the gospel, the prophecies concerning the coming of Christ, and false teachers. These false teachers mock the second coming of Christ. And for this reason, Peter now tells us he wants to remind us of two things. The predictions of the holy prophets, their prophecies concerning Christ's return. And two, the commandment of, our, of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And so he's going to remind us of these two things. And you'll see in 3, 1 through 10, the emphasis is on Christ coming. And then in 3, 11 through 18, he moves on to the commands. And again, you're seeing, just as you saw in chapter 1, that the commands are rooted in the gospel, in the good news about Jesus. And that concerns not just his death. That concerns not just his resurrection. It concerns Christ who came, who died, who rose, who ascended, and who is seated at the hand of the Father and promises to return. All of that is the good news of our salvation. Christ is the good news of our salvation. And so he's telling us again that this ethical emphasis that we see throughout the New Testament is rooted in the truth of Christ. 3.11 Since all these things are thus to be dissolved at Christ's coming, when you enter into the fullness of salvation, because that's true... What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? See, contrary to so many false teachers who tell us that doctrine should take a back seat to Christian living, life, discipleship experiences, Peter says the exact opposite. It's not deeds over creeds, but it's creeds that produce your deeds. Your deeds are an expression of your creed. Everyone has one. It's whether or not it's a good one. Your deeds follow from that. So here's the rough outline then that we've got before us. Chapter 1, 3 through 15, ethics. 16 through 21, the coming of Christ. Chapter 2, false teachers. Chapter 3, 1 through 10, the coming of Christ. 
chapter 3, 11 through 18, ethics. See the pattern? Ethics coming false teachers coming ethics. This ABCBA pattern that uh, is replicated in various variations throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, we call a chiasm. It's a way of organizing. And the emphasis, as you can see, is quite often on the middle part of the chiasm. And that's why chapter 2 stands out as it does. But isn't it especially um, fitting, appropriate, that in this letter where Peter has said that his intent is to remind us that he would use this A, B, C, B, A pattern. This is the second letter where the apostle tells us that he's endeavored to remind us. There's a lot of debate over whether or not this is First Peter or it's some lost letter, such as what we have whenever we, we know we have whenever we read the Corinthian letters. It's clear that there's one of those we don't have, at least one, perhaps two. And so the debate is, is, is this referring to First Peter or some other letter that we do not have? Well, we can piece together so little that we shouldn't be dogmatic one way or the other regarding this. Now, still, there are two things that incline me to believe that 1 Peter is that letter. And the first is that there's this talk of the prophets in the second letter that we've seen. Their predictions. You remember in his first letter, Peter in chapter 1, 10 through 12 says, Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look." You have there the same kind of prophet-apostle uh, emphasis that you see in this letter. But what's more telling are the specific prophecies, the specific predictions that are emphasized in both letters. Whenever Peter says, concerning this salvation, if you remember in 1 Peter 1, the salvation he's referring to there is our ultimate salvation that we enter into at the coming of Christ whenever we begin to enjoy our inheritance that we were born again to. In the first letter, Peter talks about the danger of persecutions from without. In the second, he deals with perversions that arise from within. But in both letters, he holds out the same hope of deliverance, the coming of Christ where His enemies will be dealt with and we will enter into eternal bliss. Regardless of the audience, regardless of whether or not the first letter we have in our New Testament was the first letter Peter is referring to here, 
some other person has discipled them. That's clear. He talks about them being established in these truths. They already have been taught these things. And now Peter has written one letter to them in which he's reminded them of these things. And now we come to this letter in which he not only reminds them of these things, but then he reminds them again in the same letter of these things. They've been told. He tells them again. He tells them again. And he tells them again. It's reported that a preacher once outlined his approach to sermons in this way. First, I tells them what I'm going to tell them. Second, I tells them. And third, I tells them what I told them. That's been widely circulated as good advice for effective communication, not just within the church, but that's just a popular saying that's been thrown out since that. Uh, Peter's concern, though, is far deeper than effective communication. He doesn't just want you to remember his point. He knows that we are sinful and we forget this to the depth of our soul. He knows that false teachers are voracious to consume Christ's lambs. He knows that these truths are key to our sanctification and he knows that we never graduate from these truths. We just go deeper and deeper into these truths. You see, by this reminder, he wants to stir up their sincere mind. Effective communication requires more than repetition. It requires regeneration. It requires a new mind. It requires a true mind, a pure mind, a sincere mind. These truths will know, do you no good if you just are able to recall them intellectually. The false teachers could do that. They were privileged to enjoy the light of this revelation. They could remember in that sense. But he wants to stir up those who have a sincere mind by way of reminder. The more important question, whenever we gather every Lord's Day to celebrate Christ is risen, He's risen indeed, the more important thing is not, do you remember? But do you want? To remember? Is there a sincere mind that longs to be stirred up by these truths? In particular, Peter wants them to remember two things. One, the predictions of the holy prophets. The com- and two, the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, Peter could have flipped those two. He could have spoken about the commands of the prophets and, he, and the uh, predictions of the apostles just as well. But by this order, I think he's wanting to emphasize this confirmed word of the prophets, their predictions, this, this, this testimony of the coming of Christ is very old. And he wants to emphasize the authority of the apostles, that their commands are the commands of our Lord and Savior. Now, liberal Christianity thought it could play multiple choice with these two. Predictions, commands, and they found the predictions just embarrassing, both concerning His first advent and His second, concerning His virgin birth and His return and glory. They find all that too embarrassing, so they think that you can just study up on one of these points for the final exam and still pass. They opted for the commands. We'll soon see that you can't play multiple choice here. 
If you only study for part of this exam, you flunk the whole thing. If you choose to remember only one of these, you forget them both. And why is it important that they remember both of these? Because, verse 3, scoffers will come with scoffing. Don't let the future tense fool you. He's speaking of something that's present. The false teachers he's been dealing with in chapter 2 are these very scoffers. The letter to the Hebrews opens by telling us, Long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days. We are in the last days. Jesus inaugurated the last days. Study Peter's sermon at Pentecost and it makes clear that Peter understands that whenever Jesus came, the end came. It's here now, but it's not fully present yet. It's been initiated. John goes further to say that it is the last hour. So many Antichrist have come. Therefore we know it is the last hour. These scoffers are Antichrist as they scoff at His return, as they mock His coming. They scoff at His return, verse 3 tells us, following their own sinful desire. You see their doctrine and their morality walk hand in hand. Sin is living a lie. Perhaps chiefly we could say it's living this lie. Jesus is not Lord. Righteousness is living truth. Chiefly this truth. Christ is Lord. And so, you scoff at His coming... Because if He's not coming, what does it matter that He's Lord? His Lordship is impotent. Do as you please. They construct a a theology of their own imagination so it's more convenient for their conscience to worship the idols they really love. You may say like the liberal theologians of 80... 90, 100 years ago, you might say as they did that your intent is still to follow Christ as Lord, obeying His ethical commands. You just don't, uh, don't think the miraculous that we were meant to read those things in, in as seriously as, as we do. You might say that that's the case, but you'll end up in the same place that they did. The trajectory that they started has those very denominations ordaining homosexual ministers now. And the effort that they made against the Lordship of Christ all those years ago, well, it's only become manifest what their real idol always was in this. The pride of life, the desires of the flesh. Remember, knowing this, He's telling us, scoffers will come with scoffing. You see, instead of these scoffers that come along and they sound so wise, according to this world, remember, scoffers will come with scoffing. Instead of them destroying our faith, we, just, we should allow them to build it. Whenever they come with their scoffing, our response should be, the one who you deny told me you would come. The one you say doesn't exist predicted your coming. 
They're scoffing far at chipping away from chipping away at Christ's dependability only serves to further confirm it. Now let's look closer at their scoffing and Peter's rebuttal. Verse 4, they ask, where? That by itself isn't much of an objection. The response is simply, there, in the future. Where is this coming? It's there, it's in the future. But they add, because all things are continuing as they were since the beginning of creation. Since the fathers died, history has been stuck on repeat. The actors rotate on and off. But the play is the same. The lights come on, action. The lights go off, repeat. The circle of life keeps spinning. One plus one still equals two. Red is still red. Yellow and blue still make green. Hope I got that right. Uh, Liquid is permeable. Two protons make helium. We live, we eat, we die. Things have been continuing as they were since the beginning of creation. Atheists and pagans alike think that life is a big hamster wheel. You live, you die, you become fertilizer, the grass is green, the cow eats it. You're part of the cow. That's the atheist worldview. The pagan just adds a mystical bent to it where you become the cow. It's just a big hamster wheel. There's always a false teacher to come along and put a Christian bent on this philosophy. And they make it sound Christian by using a kind of Christianese jargon. They'll talk about the beginning of creation or since the fathers fell asleep. But what you need to see is that whenever they sound philosophical with this question, where is the promise of His coming? Things are continuing as they were since the beginning of creation. That this objection finds a hook, not in any kind of rationality, but in an emotional appeal. It's whenever times are hard that our souls resonate with the question, where? Having lost hope in the present, the false teacher sees opportunity to destroy your hope in the future. Where is the promise of His coming? Things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The wicked rise and prosper. The righteous are poor and destitute. Where? Now let's join Peter in scoffing at the scoffer's scoffing. He says they overlook this fact. Whereas the saints are being called upon to remember, the false teachers are deliberately making an effort to forget. They overlook this fact. It's not something that's escaped their notice completely. They are overlooking it intentionally. Romans 1.18 says that the creation testifies to our God and that men suppress this truth. Well, these false teachers go beyond that because they're not only suppressing the truth of natural revelation, they are overlooking the truth of a special revelation which they've been privileged to enjoy as they arose from within the church. They overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water and by the word of God. They overlook this fact. They, with their very own words, said, since the beginning of creation. If everything's stuck on repeat, if everything's just this endless circle, if things are always continuing, 
You see, you just refuted your point. There was a beginning. Creation is not a circle. It is a line. There was a beginning. There will be an end. The end has been plotted, and the course towards that end has never deviated. God spoke, and creation was. So we'll call this hamster wheel mythbuster number one. Further, the world that had a beginning, Peter tells us, has already perished once. By these, he says, verse 6, which I take to mean by the water and the word. Could mean by the waters. I think it's by the water and the word. These already perished. This is not the kind of thing that repeats itself. This has only happened once throughout the course of human history. God promised it wouldn't happen again in that particular way. We'll call this hamster wheel myth buster number two. And thus, having a beginning and having this new creation reboot in the middle of this epic tale, we can be assured that the end is coming. Creation had a beginning, it had an end. The author is speaking. By His word, creation was. By His word, creation is. By His word, creation will be no more as we know it, but will be made new through fire. Creation as it is sustained by God now is stored up for fire. This world as it exists under the feet of fallen humanity is being preserved to be burned up. It's being preserved for a fire of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Now with the next use of the word beloved in verse 8, you see that Peter is transitioning from scoffing at the scoffer scoffing to now again encouraging the elect. While the scoffers overlook these facts, Peter wants the saints not to overlook this fact. Verse 8, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. What will arm the saints against the false teacher's teaching is doctrine. What will guard them against the false teacher's corresponding ungodliness is the doctrine of God, theology proper, who God is. He will steer them away from their immorality by calling them to remember God's eternality. Theology is not impractical. Our God is eternal. Peter's drawing on Psalm 93-4. You return man to the dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Man is as dust, or God is eternal. How arrogant of man to judge the author's epic in light of the few short paragraphs that concern us and our generation. We're like the child who upon asking how long until his birthday Upon hearing three months replies, that's for 
forever. We are so immature in our concept of time. Think of how long God waited until He called Abraham out of Ur. Seemed as if the plan of God that He had promised to crush the head of the serpent was going nowhere for generation after generation after generation. And then think of how long it was until He seems to make good on that promise that He made to Abraham and calling out a people to Himself and giving them the land promised to Him. And then how long is it until He gives them a king? How long still more until He gives them that king of that king? The one promised to crush the head of the serpent. When scoffers ask, where? Don't fret because of now. Remembering God's eternity. His plan may be slow in reference to how we would like to see things planned out. But it is sure. You see, He isn't slow, verse 9 tells us. He's patient. Our God doesn't waffle. He isn't thinking about reneging. He isn't vacillating between keeping His promise right now or, or waiting just a little bit longer. This delay doesn't indicate, indicate some kind of indecisive nature where He's, he's, he's going to do it, but He's just hesitant. Should He pull the trigger now, wait a little bit longer? Now this is a favorite text of those who want to deny God's sovereign, unconditional election. Verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Many try to deny the first chapter of Peter's first letter by appealing to the last chapter of his second letter. Remember in his first letter, Peter told us he addressed his letter to elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. I've argued that the foreknowledge of God, his knowledge, is, it's that language of intimate covenant relationship that he knows his people, he knows his sheep. And so whenever it tells us that he foreknew us, it means, means that he set his covenant love upon us before we were there for him to set it upon us. He says of those he chose in 1 Peter 1, 3 that he caused them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. His, his salvation didn't make men potentially savable. It saved them. It accomplished it. So rather than beginning by trying to deny what one text makes really clear with another text that's a bit more vague and obscure, shouldn't we simply find a way to rectify what both of these two texts are saying and harmonize them? I find the arguments for election in 1 Peter 1 really thick. And the counter-arguments as they're attempted to be extracted from 2 Peter 3.9 really thin. Here are two reasons. Let's take this text as the Arminian runs with it on its most simple 
level. Not theologizing, not trying to tease out any kind of outside implications. Let's just take the text at face value as they interpret it. God desires that all men repent. That is something in and of itself that no Calvinist would ever deny. God desires that all men repent. It's their duty. God commands it. In the same way He commands all men, you shall not murder, He commands them to repent. He desires that. Theologians have long spoken of there being two wills in God. There is His secret will and His revealed will. These terms, we have a, a, a different terminology that we use for these things because no term really captures it completely. There is His secret will. That is His decree. His will of decree. That He's decreed the beginning from the end. He tells us in Isaiah 46. And then His counsel shall stand and He will accomplish all His purpose. This is His secret will in the sense that we don't know everything there is. But God does. He's decreed it and it will happen. But then there is also His revealed will or His preceptive will. These are His commands. You shall not murder. Those commands are violated all the time. And His command that all men repent is a decretive will. He commands all men to repent. It is not speaking of His secret will. His secret will is that He gives a heart of repentance to His elect. These two are talking about different wills, different desires. And further, some theologians add a third category. I'm not a fan of this third category, but it's called his will of desire. It does, it's helpful to some extent if it helps you. might appeal to Ezekiel 18.23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord Yahweh, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? The point is that what is spoken of in 1 Peter 1 is God's sovereign will. And what is spoken of here is not that same will. There's no conflict between the two. This one doesn't say anything about 1 Peter 1. Now, though I'd agree with this truth, that God desires all men to repent, I don't think that's true of this text. I don't think that's the point Peter's making here. What is the antecedent of all? If I say right now, all are invited to my house for lunch, none of you would be so absurd as to think that I'm inviting all the world over for lunch. Whenever Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six that all Israel will be saved, no orthodox theologian thinks that means every ethnic Israelite who has ever lived will be saved. Romans 9 and 10 make it clear that he's speaking of true Israel, which he's defined as those he chose. Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter here is not talking about God's patience towards all. Verse 9, who is he patient towards? He's patient towards you. Not wishing that any, what's the antecedent of any? Not wishing that any, of you should perish, but that all, 
What's the antecedent of all? Well, it's the any. What's the antecedent of the any? It's the you, not wishing that any of you should perish. And that that's Peter's intent is made really clear just a few verses down. I've never in my life seen an explication by an Arminian of Romans 3.9 that talks about Romans 3, uh, 1 Peter 3.9 that talks about 1 Peter 3.15. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Who's to count it as salvation? The church is to count God's patience as their salvation, as their not perishing. The Lord is not slow. He's patient towards you, not willing that any should perish. Here's the idea. It's either one of two things. He's not willing that any of His people should perish. He delays His coming. Why? So that He might gather in the full number of His elect. And when he has, he will come. That's the interpretation I'm more inclined to. The other option is this, and it fits contextually. That's why I give it credence. Is that he's patient towards them specifically, not willing that they should perish as they might be wandering after these false teachers, but that they might have time to repent and thus prove to be Christ. Both are viable. I think the first one more likely. So this text says nothing contrary to 1 Peter 1. Rather, it's addressing the exact same audience. He's not willing that any of you, his elect exiles, should perish. Finally, Peter wants these beloved saints to know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the judgment of this world. Now, this, this idea of Jesus coming like a thief is a phrase that's repeated a few times throughout the scripture the most well known no doubt being in the gospels whenever we read know this that the master of the house if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into therefore you must also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect so proponents of a secret rapture that Jesus will come and no one will be aware of it except for the piles of clothes that are laying around. Proponents of a secret rapture, which is unfortunately the majority position in evangelicalism due to things like the Left Behind series, Tim LaHaye, things of that nature, they like to use this imagery to bolster that theology. No one will know. It's like this thief in the night. It catches us by surprise. And the irony is that it's those dispensationalists who hold to this kind of secret rapture who have all the charts, who have mapped everything out, and who are telling us that the end must be near because of all these reasons that they give. The point of this language is that the return will catch many unready and that the saints are to be ready. The point is not chronological awareness, but ethical preparedness. It's not chronological awareness, but ethical preparedness for the coming of Christ. Whenever a father tells two sons, tells one of them, sweep up the garage, tells another, wash the car, 
I'm going to be out. Whenever I come back, I want these things done. Whenever one son does his chore and the other one does not, which one was ready for the father's return? See, readiness isn't measured by looking out the window with anxiety. It's the son who hasn't done his chore that's worried about the father's return and isn't ready. It's the very one who's, who you might say is most watchful that isn't ready. But it's the son who's at peace and having obeyed his father that's ready for his return. 1 Thessalonians makes this clear. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need of anything that, to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Now it's like a thief in this. You don't know when it's happening. But you're not meant to be surprised by it. You're meant to be ready. Notice that in Thessalonians, Paul says, they respond saying, there is peace and security to try to alleviate their conscience. Live freely. Do what you want to do. You see, where is the promise of His coming? Things are just continuing as they were. Peace, peace. Such are not ready. We are not to be such. When he comes, the world will be burned up, dissolved by fire as if by a furnace, so that the ungodly are exposed, they're proved, they're tested, they're shown to be dross, and they will be destroyed eternally. Saints, remember. Don't forget. Don't overlook. Remember. May the scoffers scoffing, which we hear every day, not cause us to waver in our belief, but confirm it all the more. Christ is Lord. He will return. Scoff at their scoffing knowing that the very truths that they smirk at will prove their undoing and our deliverance. Let's pray. Father, thank You for these letters, this book of reminders of Your Son and all of His glory and the promise of His return. And may we live as though that were so, by your grace. In Christ's name, amen.